0: On the Empire podcast this week, we take a few from the bridge with the wonderful Mark Strong and we welcome one of Britain's most interesting directors, Peter Strickland, Duke of the Duke of Burgundy, into the pod booth. All that and more on the movie podcast. I could swear we just saw Saul Goodman managing a Cinnabon in Omaha. Must have just been a trick of the light. Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire podcast. This week, I've become obsessed with dating sites. Not because my wife has seen the light and kicked me out, uh, because of my unhealthy obsession with the Magic Mike XXL trailer—my word—but because I have a friend uh, who started using them, and uh, those things are lucrative. Yes, yeah, no, a not a friend with you know the air quotes—an <laughs> actual human friend. I could produce this human friend. Uh, he's standing right here, in fact, beside oh, me. Goodness. You can see him, don't you? Hello. Um, no, a genuine friend who's started genuinely using dating apps uh, like Tinder and Grinder. Uh, not grinder, not grinder. No. Okay, and it's been fascinating watching them navigate this this minefield. But also, there's so many out there. Mm. It's such a lucrative thing. So, we here at Team Pod, have come up with our own dating apps because, frankly, we want to do next week's podcast from a yacht. So, first up, you've already heard her. It's our geek queen, Helen O'Hara, whose dating app allows you to meet topless sams and deans in your area. She's called it the Winchester. With no E.
1: I think it could really take off. In fairness, there's also, you know, a thread you can follow if you want to see them wearing plaid shirts first. So it's, uh, it's got everything.
0: It does have everything. Apps. <laughs> I've just signed up.
1: <laughs> You're wearing a plaid shirt. Oh, my goodness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Confusing.
0: Absolutely everything. Uh, next up is our resident Jurassic Park expert, uh, a man who's dead nap app, is called Raptor. And uh, it basically just... This is weird. It basically just features pictures of Wayne Knight. Now, <laughs> Eating oh, no, cake. Wait, that's, your actual, that's your camera roll on your phone, isn't it, Nick <laughs> Dissemblian? Nick Dissemblian, hello, welcome, Nick Dissemblian.
2: Hello, I've actually updated my app. It's it's now called Jurassic Poke, and um, <laughs> oh. you poke your favourite dinosaur paddock. It's not like that. You poke your favourite dinosaur paddock in the park, uh-huh. and um, like-minded people do the same, and then you uh, hook up with whoever likes the same dinosaurs. <laughs> Really? Yeah, that could genuinely work. Yeah,
0: really? Could it? That could genuinely work. I had one. uh, Phil. uh, Phil, the same thing we were here today. I had an idea that he could do. Like he could do like an art house dating app, right? Okay. So instead of like pictures of people that you swipe left or swipe right on, it's pictures of your DVD and Blu-ray collection.
1: Ooh. So, you know,
0: and you rate people based on whether you're compatible with their collections. And obviously, we'd call it something like Ferner or Fenders or, you know, with all the little E's taken I've got it. Get it
2: criteria on. Oh, oh
1: that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, only problem is, um, I think I would I would get no business whatsoever on that app because my DVDs are color coded, and I feel like a serious cineast of the sort who would be on that app.
0: Oh, cineast! Would yes. also be a good
1: website. <laughs> oh, there uh, you did go. That website? could also work. Or
2: Free colors: fairy blue. <laughs> that's yeah. That's a bit more like.
1: But I think they'd reject me immediately for having them in such a an unordered order.
0: An ordered order.
1: An unordered order. An
0: unordered order. Mm. Um, Yes, that would be... Yeah, we've we've, we've discussed this before in the podcast, but mine start out... I always start out alphabetical. I I get quite anal about it, so to speak, on com, And uh, I get quite anal about it. And then I just lose the will to live. And I just stop and I just kind of throw things in higgledy-piggledy. But it means that you'd have to, you know, you'd have to curate your DVD collection in order to appeal to the woman or man of your dreams. And so you'd have to, like, be careful in case, like... Dude, where's my car cut in there or something? You know what I mean? Yeah. You'd have to be really, really finickety about what you wanted to pursue. So you're basically back
1: in regular dating app territory, trying to hide the worst bits of yourself. They're all hellish. Let's is? just not do them.
0: But this would be really lucrative. <laughs> I could see us going on Dragon's going, please, we would like £100,000 in exchange for 20% in our company. What did you say? Getitcriterion.com? (laughs) Getitcriterion.com. Yeah, I can see Banatine reacting very well to that one. Um, But there we go. Hello, welcome everybody. Glad to have you here in the podcast booth, as always. We have some questions that people have sent in via Twitter this week. And here's the first one. It's from uh, Dan J. Brady. Good question, this one. I wonder what the best abrupt endings are in film history. Any ideas? Spoilers. For the sake of saying Whiplash, we're not going to spoil because Whiplash is still in the cinemas right now. We but can spoil a lot of films. For the next five minutes, we are going to be talking about endings of movies, some of which are going to be old, like Kiss Me Deadly, and uh, some of which are not, like The Wrestler, which is about what's five years old now. Yep. So that's that's. Uh, so you will
2: hear some endings. So maybe skip this if you're spoiler averse. So what's mm-hmm. what's The Wrestler? T- so it just, it, oh gosh, it's been so long since I've seen it, but it, it ends in the, it, with this, the the fight, doesn't it? And he's literally yeah. jumping. Does it finish mm. when he's in mid air? And I think you, so. the assumption is that he's going to die.
1: Yeah, my assumption certainly was heart attack death. Mm. The end.
2: Mm-hmm. And then there's the Italian Job. Yeah,
1: I was yeah. going to mention that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> we
2: were, yeah, that, Well, that was the first one that popped into my head when I read this. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen the Italian Job, what are you doing? It's one of Mark Wahlberg's
0: finest hours, uh, if, if you ask me. Ed Norton oh. has never been better as a oh. mustachioed villain. Um... Chris, what, you you're mean?
1: embarrassing yourself, and us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean the original Italian job? Okay, the original. Maybe the gold might just take them over the edge, and the the, the guys' weight, the weight of the guys keeping the, the the bus just level. And of course, one of the great last lines.
2: Hang on, lads, I've got an idea. We never find out what the. Yeah, in my knows. in my head, oh. they're still there, and <laughs> someone's just nipping out and getting food and coming back again. But they're still stuck. <laughs> just really old now. Um, that's a great ending. Is grand. that how the remake ends as well? I haven't seen the remake.
1: There's a cliffhanger-ish bit, but not quite to, to the same extent. I can't remember
0: how the, the the remake ends. I mean, obviously, I I love it. I'm in deeply in love with it. But uh, but no, it, that's that's overtly homage that ending in the ending of lockstock and To Smoking Barrels. Horror films mm. tend to go to the abrupt ending well quite a lot. Generally speaking, they end well on a on a jump scare. A lot of films end well on a jump scare. Uh, generally speaking, in a horror film, if... The the um, the hero or heroine has survived the big attack, and then you see, and then it cuts to the next day or cuts to a few hours later. You can tell there's going to be like an, oh, another leap out, another you know another yeah. attack. Uh, but, but a lot of them end quite abruptly. Evil Dead, for example, the first Evil Dead ends very abruptly with uh, the camera, the which represents the evil rushing towards Bruce Campbell's ash. Um, but John Carpenter, for me, is the master of the abrupt ending in horror films. Uh, you know, the fog ends beautifully. The thing with that wonderful cut to black at the end, and you don't know how it's going to resolve itself. Uh, even Halloween—that
1: doesn't even feel abrupt to me. Somehow, I just.
0: Well, I'm thinking. It, it I'm thinking perfect. of endings that will leave people going, "Oh, I want to know more?" Or mm-hmm. those endings that really piss people off. I remember watching uh, No Country for Old Men. I think for the second yeah. time with a with a paying audience, and. At the end, when you know Tommy Lee Jones recounts that long uh, anecdote about his dream, and then says, "And then I woke up," and then it cuts to black, and you could just almost hear—you could—you you could hear people in the audience going, "What? What? Just uh, there's
2: got to be more, right?" Yeah. a serious man as well. Yeah. Tip. yeah,
1: Um I tell you one that I remember noticing that audience reaction with was actually the Fellowship of the Ring, where people around me were leaving the cinema clearly a little nonplussed and i actually said to someone who was sort of he was right beside me as we walked out of the cinema you know and i was sort of complaining about it i said well actually it's it's part of a three-part story next next december there's another one and and he hadn't known that prior to that Mm. um so that one tapers
2: off kind of beautifully though i think think as opposed to the desolation of smaug which (laughs) there are people have different opinions on that but i think it threw everyone because all the lord of the rings films and the first hobbit film have that tapering off Whereas this one just literally goes smash cut
1: to be continued, sort of yeah.
2: and actually when I saw that, I saw it for a second time in a with a paying audience, and someone actually yelled out, "What?" Someone <laughs> was really outraged that, that you know the dragon wasn't going to burn some shit.
1: <laughs> Speaking of dragons, kind of, well, more just medieval-y stuff. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I think, deserves a mention yeah. for pulling the rug out quite profoundly and then just stopping.
0: <laughs> yes. Yep. Which is, of course, why, if you watch that film, they have the opening credit, they have the the full credits at pretty much at the beginning of the film, yeah. listing everyone who worked in the film, which is really funny in, in itself. But you're kind of thinking, well, that's a bit unusual for the time period. And <laughs> the film literally just stops with a, with a, a coat being thrown over a camera, <laughs> which is great. Um, but going back to, you know, the abrupt endings, I mean, all the way through, from films of the 30s, 40s and 50s, they did not hang around. They got to the end and they just stopped and there was none of this you know nowadays most blockbusters tend to come to a resolution and then there's a five minute come down where there's a lot of sparky conversation and you know maybe you see people having their the heroes their wounded heroes having their, their wounds tended to while cop cars mill around and all that sort of stuff uh but films in the you know I'm, I'm thinking of kiss me deadly which ends with that big explosion at the end and just finishes just doesn't hang around um yeah nowadays, there would be a five-minute scene afterwards where, you know, you find out what happened. <laughs> Films um, are too
2: long, generally, I think. They are, they are a little bit too
0: long. Um, and, you know, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but I actually think that Marvel do endings really well. And the best one I'm going to say is Captain America, The First Avenger, which I know has split a lot of people down the middle. But I love the way that movie ends with, him, with uh, Steve Rogers in Times Square in modern-day mm. New York having just woken up from a 70-year coma. Uh, or yeah, and then he goes uh, I had a date and the movie just ends and you don't quite expect it and yeah. I, thought it was, I thought it was lovely it's
1: really bittersweet that mm. Cat may be my favourite at the moment Yeah, uh, I love R- Ruffa Hulk too <laughs> okay. all of
2: them okay. but mostly Cat I'm going to shout out quickly for freeze frame endings there are not enough freeze frame endings particularly ones where people jump in the air and high five each other <laughs> and
1: <it> just freezes
2: <laughs> um, but my two favourites are Butch casty,
1: <laughs> of course yes, I've got
2: to put that in there but also Death Proof the Tarantino film, which I uh, don't love it, probably give it three stars, but I do love the last ten minutes mm. where they just catch up with Kurt Russell mm. and then just start kicking him. <laughs> 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 just this, amazing, I love the uh, the the track that kicks in there. I can't remember what it's called now. Chick Habit, I think it's called, and um, that's an amazing ending.
0: French Connection Two ends in a, in a cracking freeze frame as well as does Hot Rod, which is perhaps the only film uh, in in history to end <laughs> with. A lead character punching the air in triumph after having made uh, an old man Ian McShane in this case shit himself <laughs> is, it's a wonderful note to end the movie on <laughs> but, uh, but there you go um, other great abrupt endings for me are Robocop where Robocop uh, kills a bad guy and the old man goes nice shooting sound, what's your name and he goes Murphy and he strides out the room and the film ends lovely absolutely perfect um Rules of Attraction ends mid sentence, starts mid sentence, and ends mid sentence, which is which is nice. Um, but yeah, I, it's hard to not mention some more horror films. Really, Halloween Three is a fantastic, fantastic abrupt ending, which ends with the hero Tom Atkins trying to prevent a worldwide catastrophe, and he's yelling down the phone uh, at someone to take a, a, a signal off of uh, TV networks and uh, you never find out what three he does it. It ends with him literally yelling, stop it, into the camera. Freeze frame as well. Uh, and of course, there's uh, Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm.
1: which
2: ends with the, the great Donald Sutherland point and scream. Ooh. Finally, have we mentioned the Sopranos? Let's mention the Sopranos. The Sopranos Ooh. put me off onion <laughs> in rings. <laughs> so worried true, I'm worried I'll fade to black if I have another one. <laughs> so That's it,
1: probably it, irritated more people than any other abrupt ending in history, I would say.
2: It has. That must be the most talked about yeah. TV show ending of all time. What's your interpretation? Mine is that it's all a dream by Michael Corleone. <laughs> it's all happening inside The Godfather. Anyway. What do you think?
0: What do you think? Do you think it means so the ending of Sopranos, it just cuts to black? Now, there's a couple of theories about this. One it means it just cuts to black, and Tony Soprano goes on living his life. Another theory is that in an earlier uh, episode of The Sopranos, uh, it's discussed what would happen if you were killed. Uh, if if you if you were shot, and mm. uh, one of the characters, and I can't remember which one, says basically it would be you would just cut the black, uh, and so there's a lot of speculation that the cut to black at the end of Sopranos means that Tony has been whacked by a hitman in a members only jacket who we see in the diner
2: as well. Mm. What, what's your take? I don't it? really have a, I don't really have a theory because uh, I don't know. I kind of like the ambiguity of it, so I haven't. Uh, and you know, David Chase has said that. It's meant to be ambiguous, so I, I, I haven't really gone down on either side. I kind of like it. I don't think it's the best example of an ambiguous ending, but fair enough. Life goes on, even for gangsters. Helen? I didn't watch it. You
1: haven't seen it? I know. One day I'll get around to it. I will. So many shows. So little time.
2: It's kind of like
0: uh, Game of Thrones for me, isn't it?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Battlestar, have you seen Battlestar? No. See? I
0: have. There you go. I have. I've seen both.
1: Of course you have. Were you, you with
0: uh, Countdown?
1: Have you I am up way behind, yet? way yeah. behind. Are you
0: still Richard Whiteley?
1: Uh, like even, like, yeah, I'm somewhere in the mid-80s. Oh, you're not
0: even on season four no, yet? No, not even. Oh my God. Honestly, once you get to the Des O'Connor years.
2: <laughs> There's a shocking death. So. <laughs> Actually, there is a shocking death.
3: So <laughs> oh. We probably
2: should <laughs> cut that bit. <laughs> there is a, yeah. Okay.
0: The red counting. All right, I think we've uh, suitably answered Dan Brady's question. Uh, Apologies for my voice, by the way, I have a cold. Um, Moving on, here's a question, uh, and this will tie up one of our big news stories of the week, in case people thought we might not mention this, Helen. Uh, This is from at Phil4T1886. That is the catchiest Twitter name I've seen in a long, long time. And Phil uh, Philip says, Should Marvel slash Sony continue from uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2 with Andrew Garfield, or should they cast a new actor and do another origin? Now, Helen...
1: Now it appears that they are context not. Me. Yes, so uh, there has been a, an historic deal made this week between Marvel and Sony to basically involve Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, henceforth the MCU. Uh, he will be appearing in it. Looks like Captain America: The Winter. Sorry, Captain America: Civil War. Um, there may be other crossovers down the line. Who knows? And also Kevin Feige will be involved in Sony's take on the character. And they're actually moving some of their dates around to accommodate another Sony Spider-Man standalone film in 2017. Um, so I think Black Panther is being moved six months uh, to a slightly different release date. So it won't be competing with that. Um so so basically, Spider-Man gets to play with his Marvel friends. Hooray! <laughs> which is really good. Now, we have also heard since then it, it seems that Andrew Garfield will not be returning as Spider-Man for this. It, that's, that's what Variety is reporting right now. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the case. Um, so they are looking at a new Spider-Man, which is... An interesting thing. I think it would be extraordinarily foolish to completely do another origin story. We don't need to see Peter Parker or or whoever, Miles Morales, whoever, getting bitten by a spider for the third time in 15 years. I think what's more likely is we'll see a Spider-Man who is already Spider-Man. But there are reports that he will be back in high school. He will be young. So that would be, I guess, a nice contrast to the 30-something... Avengers who are out there, um, as so, in they're as so they're, they're
0: or all thirty something. As they're thirty something, sure. Avengers. Yeah,
1: although there might be <clears> at this <throat> rate. um yeah. So yeah. So it's it's extraordinarily good news for anyone who wants uh, Spider-Man to be playing with uh, his Marvel stablemates. So we could basically. have
2: Spider-Man and Ant-Man.
1: Yes, and Ant-Man's got to be worried because spider spiders, spiders get eat, on with ants. No, they eat them. They
2: eat them sometimes, <laughs> at least. Oh so, gosh. oh my God!
1: And he's already got Black Widow to worry about. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's getting really quite insecty, isn't it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> how long until you know termite guy um <laughs> blue bottle lady
1: <laughs> and, and i got to go off man. and trademark
2: all of these ant man's least um, favorite film is the raid
1: <laughs>
2: oh i'm uh i'm most excited about the prospects of aunt may teaming up with old peggy carter <laughs> oh, <goodness>. and uh <laughs> sort of forming a knitting circle and uh i don't know
1: Well, I have to say, I've been watching Agent Carter and I don't think she's going to be knitting anytime soon. She's absolutely fantastic so far. There's a lot here to kind of unpack. There's a lot of things that could go massively wrong, but there's also so many things that could go go right. I personally am very excited to see Kevin Feige getting involved with Spider-Man. I think, you know, he's showing... On a romantic level? Well, I mean, hey, each to their own, but also just, you know, I I don't believe his preferences swing that way, but who knows? I don't believe, no. No, no. But I do think that you know he's shown just such care and and skill with the Marvel universe so far that to see him get another key player in it under his wing is is absolutely fantastic.
0: It does seem to be an element of we got this guys going on this week with this. You know, whether over the last few years, Marvel have looked on with mounting horror at what's been happening with Spider Man uh, over at Sony, which is basically an attempt to establish a Spider Man universe but there's not a lot there there's not a lot of meat on the bones literally Sony all they have is Spider-Man and they were looking at making Spider-Man movies that didn't have Spider-Man in them which always to me seemed utterly bizarre the treatment of the character for whatever reason I thought Andrew Garfield was very very good but I thought those films were, were ultimately disappointing and have diminished I think in a lot of people's minds since then and I think that Marvel must be looking at this going okay we know what we're going to do with this character we know how he's going to fit into this universe 17 year old kid uh going up against tony stark and the hulk that you know that's going to be fun so don't worry we got this
1: there's a bit of that but what's interesting is i was reading last night that apparently they are still planning the sinister six and venom movies at sony those are still in in scope now and what's interesting about the whole sony aspect of this deal is that for the since The Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out, we were told even before that was released that they were already planning three and four, that those were lined up. They were already talking Sinister Six. They were also talking Venom. There's also been talk of the sort of Spider-Ladies film happening at some point. So they've got all these ideas floating around. But when we talked to Mark Webb, he didn't know what order they were all happening in. He, he didn't know how they all fitted together. So somebody had ideas for all these films, but hadn't figured out the grand master plan and you really really need that to make it work and so what it seems like is whether it's a a crisis of confidence or whether it's not whether it's absolute confidence in what they have but a desire to to really even boost that further by linking to the mcu Mm. um they have decided to to take this step as a result and it's kind of interesting we there's been no talk that I've heard since uh, Tuesday, whenever it was, that the Spider-Ladies film, as it were, is still on. Um, but certainly, apparently Venom and Sinister Six are still out there. Yes, Crazy.
0: but if you're dealing with a situation where you literally only have the Spider-Man characters to play with, yeah, uh, which makes it a very, very limited uh, sandbox, uh, you, you have a Sinister Six film where Spider-Man won't show up because of you know, Andrew Garfield's contractual situation or you don't want to overact the pudding or you have a Venom movie without Spider-Man. Like, yeah, I can, you know, and that, that's going to be tough, I think. But you recast a character
2: mm. with
0: a young kid, young 17, 18, 19-year-old kid who will sign up for a, a Marvel standard nine-picture deal. Suddenly, you can have Spider-Man in those movies even as, a, as a, a cameo-in entity. But also, one of the very interesting things that apparently about this deal is that the door swings both ways. Yeah. So... Sony will be able to use certain characters from the MCU in their standalone Spider-Man movies. Mm. That's kind of interesting to me. So suddenly, will we see a situation where, and we know that the, the, we know the contract situations with the likes of Downey and Hemsworth and Evans are are watertight. But will we see a situation, for example, where Ruffalo shows up briefly in a Spider-Man movie, or we get Hawkeye or Black Widow, or we get, you know. Uh, we get Paul Rudd, or you know someone or like a Shield,
1: or whatever, or yeah. Shield,
0: yeah. So then it becomes one big universe. Mm. Uh, and what does this mean then for the other Marvel properties that are out there at the moment, the likes of X Men and
2: Fantastic Four? It's very exciting. I mean, I'm not as much of an expert as you guys, but I have been playing Lego Marvel Superheroes on the PlayStation 4, which is an amazing game. <laughs> and in that game, everyone is in that. Yeah. It's just a huge mashup. So you have all the Marvel characters and the Avengers, but you also have Spider Man, Fantastic Four, and it's so much fun playing with all those characters and seeing them together and stuff so it's really i think it's very very exciting to have them all together
1: the other thing i'd say about uh, garfield i mean obviously you know first things first he loves spider-man but i doubt he's crying too many tears over this because he's working i think on i think he's now started work on martin scorsese's silence so he's doing okay in his career but the other thing is i genuinely think that the end of the last spider-man movie and i'm not going to say what happened for the three of you who haven't seen it but The end of that movie, I think, torpedoed his character because they had built that character in conjunction with certain elements. And when you remove those elements, you genuinely, I think, you undermine (coughs) that figure in a way that I'm not sure they were going to be able to get back from. And so I think in that sense, recasting was maybe the only way to go. I think they had written themselves into a corner there and there was no way back. They
0: possibly had. Also, the fact is, he is now 31 years old. And it was already being be a bit of a stretch accepting him as a college-age kid in uh, Spider- Amazing mm. Spider-Man 2. So there's no way. He's youthful, but there's no way he could pull off... There's no, <laughs> I, I should probably phrase this better, but there's no way he could pull off a 17-year-old boy.
2: I like Andrew Garfield a lot. Uh, that sounds weird, coming straight after your sentence. Um, <laughs> I'm a fan of Andrew Garfield, but I've been quite vocal about not particularly being on board with him as Spider-Man from the beginning. I think he's... Mm. For me, he's too kind of buff and handsome and tall and all that stuff and i think spider-man is an underdog so i'm excited to see who's next
1: the only thing is i wish they were going college age not high school i mean in the comics actually spidey didn't spend that long at high school the original spider-man and apart from ultimate and so on um he he, i associate him more with the college years i so associate him more with trying to manage studies and a part-time job and bring some money in and being a superhero it's that kind of melange of things and i think if you're still at high school that that hasn't quite hit you to the same extent. You don't quite have the same financial responsibilities. You don't quite, you're not quite as growing up. And I think it's it's that combination of being on the edge of adulthood and, and having all these crazy responsibilities that, that, that makes Spider-Man yeah. so interesting. So I kind of wish they'd, they'd go a little older, but I'm talking like well, 19. Kind well, of how Miles
2: that. Teller is in, in Whiplash, that kind of... Yeah,
1: that kind of age, exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, the best Spider-Man movie to date is Spider-Man
0: 2. Exactly. Uh, in which he is college age and struggling with the job and struggling pizza, with all those responsibilities. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I love that film. Uh, it'd be really interesting to see, we you know that Sam Raimi feels he has unfinished business with the franchise. And uh, I personally would like to see him
2: back.
1: You shock this. me. I know, <laughs> I know.
2: Sam Raimi, yeah. I'd like to see him doing any Marvel film. I think they should hire him. Yeah. He's, he's terrific and hasn't had a chance uh, to do a good story for quite a while, I'd say.
0: Right. Have we covered enough Spider-Man stuff? Marvel love-in finished? <laughs>
1: Hooray! All
0: over. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us on the Empire Podcast, uh, you can send us in your questions. Uh, we're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. The hashtag is Empire Podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook as well as Empire Magazine. And you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, time now for our first interview. Peter Strickland is a fascinating director, as you'll know, if you've seen either of his two previous movies, Kathleen Farga or Barbarian Sound Studio. Uh, In other words, Toby Jones goes mad in in a sound booth, a bit like this one. The British director, who's actually based in Hungary, is on equally perplexing form with his new movie, The Duke of Burgundy, about the complex and sexually challenging relationship between a moth expert, played by Sidse Babbitt Knudsen, and her lover, played by Chiara Dano. It uh, promises to be more kinky than Fifty Shades of Grey, although don't necessarily compare the two films. This is a very different, critically acclaimed, and weirder kettle of sexy fish. Uh, Mr. Strickland came in recently to talk to our resident art house guru, Phil Dissemlian, and yes, it gets very, very artsy indeed. Slap on the subtitles. You might need them. Enjoy.
4: Peter Strickland, you're really welcome on the Empire podcast in Thank what's you. potentially the worst introduction you'll hear to any interview you'll do for the uh, Duke of Burgundy press tour Director of Catalin Varga, Barbarian Sound Studio and now, as I mentioned, Duke of Burgundy which is um, a film that is like nothing else really beautiful and haunting and emotional and a word that people are using a lot about it is kinky You don't hear that word with Mike Lee's films, for instance, very much but a kinky
3: It kind of reminds me of reading The Sun in the 80s, that word kinky, uh, about politicians. Um, But then again, this stars an ex-politician from the ex-prime minister of Denmark, kind of, Sidse, who's in Borgen. Uh, Of course, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, for me, I I guess the film comes from that period of cinema which explored kind of wayward activities. um, So that was taking certain... Cliches or tropes from those films, such as you know the female lovers, sadomasochism, and I think what's interesting about that genre is it is kind of mostly disregarded. It's seen as disreputable, but you know if you go through those films, there's some really fantastical elements, and, and it's, I mean, sometimes whole films. I think you know, such as you know, *The Virgin Among the Living Dead*, *Lorna the Exorcist*, a lot of those early Franco films or the Jean Roland films, Baudovin stuff. They've all got moments which are really amazing, and I think what's interesting about them is. Clearly they had to make money, you know, and I think the producers were mainly concerned with seeing the sex scenes. But once that's ticked off, what you do in between, no one really sort of cares that much. I mean, the the directors cared, but I don't think the people financing it did. So um, that's where you find these really wonderful pockets of strangeness, of these portals that go into something very fantastical. So really, it's kind of coming off that, but the main thing is, with the kink, it would not be interesting for me if, if they were both into it. And I think with most films, both people in, in, in the relationship are, are into it. That, that's For me, that's harmony. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in when one person isn't. Then you get to this whole boundary of compromise and coercion. That, that, that's where it becomes interesting for me. You
4: set the film at a point in the relationship with these two women where one plays the submissive. Um, and there's obviously a lot more going on behind the scenes of that that that, that sort of reveals itself during the course of the film but at an interesting point in their relationship where the excitement of the sexual stuff that they're doing has faded a bit but the emotion is still blazing um, and they're not quite sure maybe how to sort of balance the two things in their relationship um can you just talk a little bit about the the dynamic of those two at this point? I mean, how long they've been together? Do you have an idea of how long they've been together and where they met and and how it's come to this?
3: I never in my head I didn't have any kind of time reference. I mean, they've clearly been. It's at the beginning. It's clearly not the first time. It's certainly a routine they've been doing. Even though when you watch the film, you, you think they're not even in a relationship. You think it's it's a maiden and her boss. So I mean, it could be, you know. A few months minimum could be a few years maximum. We're, we're not sure. Just the idea of that—you know—they had been together for a while, and um, and at the end of the film, you don't know if it's a flashback mm. to earlier or if it's like a relapse and so on. But really, I mean, in terms of, in terms of the dynamic, it's—I mean sadomasochism seemed like a good platform for exploring power in a, in a relationship and. I don't think the power shifts so much; it's just revealed. Okay, it shifts occasionally when um, Cynthia gets her revenge with with her pajamas. But um, but ultimately, um, I enjoyed. You know, I think as a filmmaker, there are a lot of parallels which are really fascinating in terms of Evelyn's character and being a, a writer director. You know, I think that the, there's the, there's the script for the Duke of Burgundy, and there's Evelyn's script hmm. for Cynthia to follow. You know, there's marker tape that. I as a director put on the floor for the actors there's the market tape that Evelyn puts on the floor so you kind of think it's a mistake at first and um or maybe it was a mistake and we just try to find an excuse for it now <laughs> <laughs> and all these things I mean you know, she, she she essentially she 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 directs Cynthia you know if 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 the um performance is not correct you know I think she she's just just lost interest and I think that's the same same for a director so I mean yeah, again and again I hadn't really seen that done before where I think in films I mean I'm, there might be an example but I'm not aware of it. The dominant was always in character. They're dressed in character, they hit their marks, they hit their cue. they were always on cue. I want to see that person, you know, peeling that stuff away. I want to see them in their pajamas. I want to see them miss their cues. Again, that, that that's where it comes alive somehow. Um it you know, I mean the the idea for me is to puncture the whole fantasy I think most films of sadomasochism they they prop up a fantasy they em- embody it somehow I'm interested in puncturing that showing you know um, peeling that away somehow so really it's, it's not I wouldn't say it's elevating genre as people always say it's more because that always implies that you don't actually like the genre you're coming from I'd say it's just peeling that away and showing what is, what is underneath that and showing that there's emotional truth there somehow and for me it is coming at this hopefully something that people can recognize through a very unrecognizable spectacle which i'm guessing the activities they, they indulge in are not on the curriculum for, for, for most people but it does, it doesn't matter i think the by by normalizing it by implying that others are into it even though that is absurd you know i'm not for a minute suggesting that you know, it's a very fictional world, but I think the, the emotions hopefully are, are the only thing that resonates. It's
4: a very emotional film, absolutely. Uh, it's kind of heartbreaking in a, in a lot of instances, but it's also a film with um, very unusually uh, a, a perfumes by credit. Somebody, um, <clears throat> can you just talk about that? I mean, is this this is a film that potentially would work brilliantly in this sort of the era of o vision, where you oh, could actually with, yeah. project John some Waters. Of stuff? Waters, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean... No, d- Odorama. <laughs> exactly. The perfumes by... Je suis Gisela.
3: Right. I kind of stole that from a Bill Wyman song, but... Um, C.C. Je suis rock Rockstar. Okay. It's just my growing it's... up from the 80s. I mean, a lot of 80s references in this film, like I think even Terry and June, which is quite serious, because it, it does it does end up as a domestic drama. It comes from genre, but it becomes a domestic drama in, in the end. But no, the perfume thing, I think... I mean, my my job is, as 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 a director is to get the audience in the mood as quickly as possible, and um, I don't see credits as dead space. They're often seen as informational space in terms of information about us, the, the filmmakers. Mm. Um, but there is leeway in there to twist the truth and, and lie and, mm. and put the audience in 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 that in that in that world. So, and I'd seen this. Um, Audrey Hepburn film um, Paris When It Sizzles I think it's the only film I can think of which had um, a perfume mm. at and I didn't know this until later because um, I used to work for him, um, Bruce LaBruce um it's not in his film, but he's launched his own perfume called um, Obscenity, which is a perfect name for Bruce Bruce LeBruce. But, um, so, yeah, I think for me, you know, because it is a film, we're not really dealing with sound this time. It's more about the uh, the other senses. Mm. It's a very tactile film, a very sensual film. So, I think, yeah, my job is to kind of activate the senses as, as much as possible, um, stopping short of Odorama cards.
4: Well, Grand Budapest Hotel has its own tie in, Eau de Toilette. Does it? Yes. A leather panache, which the character uses and you can actually buy. Oh,
3: I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. It's a
4: very heady aroma. It actually spilt in my bag and my whole flat now smells okay. of it. So there, you know, there are tie-in opportunities, I guess. Was Persona a touch point for you with this?
3: Not at all. No. I mean, I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen it. Um, and this film is about putting on a persona in, mm. in many ways. Um, this dominant person who clearly is not... That's not in her nature. Yes. Uh, but not really I mean the main influences Beyond the sort of Euro Porn Or whatever you, you want You want to call it um, The main influences were um, Fassbinder uh, The Bitter Tears Of Petra von Kant Martha uh, Fox and His Friends um, And a, very specifically um, A Claude Chabrol film um, La Biche That was a big influence In a way um, Even the way Sitsa looked With with a wig That was kind of Modelled on Stefan Audran. Um, I can never pronounce correctly. <laughs> uh, I mean, there were, oh, who else was there? Um, but, I mean, but also, you know, those those domestic sitcoms from, you know, like Terry and June. I think they're they wonderful. I mean, I I grew up watching those things, and um, I thought, why why can't it be mm. in there somehow? that you start off with coming from this genre perspective, but um, it, it it this is a domestic drama. There's a bit of humour in there and a lot of squabbling. Yeah. Um, and i think that's hopefully that's the way to sort of make it resonate somehow maybe i don't know
4: well you can feel those those childhood i guess formative influences of you know you lived in reading growing up you were watching terry june dad's army repeats i guess you i know, used to love
3: dad's Dad, Army, I mean that was Dad, a big influence on barbarian and then strangely toby jones is playing captain well, Mannering now
4: i was <laughs> going to ask you about that toby jones seems absolutely perfect for captain Mannering. how do you feel about that
3: uh, I agree. I can't <laughs> wait to see it. I'm, I'm a huge fan. Um, it, yeah, it just—I
4: mean—it's it, it, interesting that you know the films that you've made. If you go into a, any other DVD shop, you—you you know, as I did, you'd go in and, and, and Barbarian Sound Studio might be filed under horror. Katlyn uh, Varga, your first movie. Um, Under foreign language, obviously The Duke of Burgundy isn't out on DVD yet, but I'm not sure where they're going to place that.
3: Adult section. Who knows? (laughs) Do you think so? Well, I mean, I I don't mind. Um, But it's it's how good Barbarian. I don't mind it being called horror, but the problem is you don't want to mislead. Well, I like misleading to a certain degree, but um, it's tricky uh, because they all kind of they all come out of of genre. So Barbarian clearly comes from that. But again, I'm kind of doing the same thing with Barbarian. It's just peeling mm. that genre away and just showing the whole mechanics of it. Um that's all it was in in, in a sense. Um and cotton Varga came from rape revenge films like Miss 45, Last House on the, on the Left, I spit I spit on your grave and just taking that and following it following the consequences of yeah. that and you know what happens if you kill someone who did violate you but what if they have children who are innocent? And, yes, and the other character who she pursues um, completely redeemed himself. Yes. But, I mean I'm not trying to. Again, I'm just. I, mean, I think all the stuff I do, I'm not trying to make any kind of moral judgment. I'm just trying to observe this world and leave it up. Leave it up to the audience. And I think writing for me is it is it isn't. It's always an. I am um, attempting to understand something. I never quite get there. Yeah. But I'm just throwing my thoughts out and observing things and leaving it, leaving it up to the audience to to go away and talk and sort of and you know I think the worst thing I could do as a filmmaker is to make up my mind and say this is <laughs> this is how it is. Yes. <laughs> that wouldn't be that feels just kind of prescriptive and didactic. So, do you find the
4: film in the editing suite or is it Is it something that comes together in the writing process, or is it something that comes together on set for you, or do you remain open to surprises?
3: Uh, More and more. At the beginning, I think because I was, I think just inexperienced, I was extremely rigid. Um, And with each film, I kind of loosen up. Maybe it's just age as well. You know, (laughs) get into your forties, you're not you're not as wound up as normal. But yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, many directors say this, but it is true. I mean, there's the script I've written but then there's a new script when you shoot there's there's a new script when you edit for sure Um, so it's always changing Uh, I mean the structure changed a lot when we edited the film Um, I try when we shoot to obviously think about the edit and often with the last two films I I go into especially darkness at the end of a shot and come out of darkness at the beginning of a shot so we could kind of take scenes from another places and just match them Yes, with quite a few things so that gives me some some scope um, but yeah I mean a lot of it is you are finding it and I, I would love to sort of sit here and say how creative it is but some of it is cosmetic that we messed it up the scene didn't work out so you've taken that out of the whole building block so you've taken that block out of the whole structure and other things collapse because you've taken that one thing out so you are kind of rebuilding out of fact that you messed something up sounds like lego for grown-ups yeah uh, that's what it is so i mean i think most editors would would say that as well i mean there is that myth that you know it's all creative and it's all by design but it's not there is a process of of discovery that yeah we do this we have all the scenes we need and they're done really well that happens on some days but other days you think okay we've got to mend something yeah so yeah, I mean it's just a process of finding the film, but editing is the most yeah, I I, I mean much more than, than than shooting. I think shooting we pretty much stick to what is done. I mean occasionally we, I mean there was a scene with the carpenter when she measures the bed that was that was a script with actual dialogue and so on, and it was so it felt so kind of boring and expositional, and I just thought actually we don't need the dialogue. I was, I was playing some um, I was playing the soundtrack to the Black Belly of the Tarantula by Morricone on set. And I thought, well, let's just play that, and the actors can just, just kind of move to that piece of music. So it, it is, you know. And it, I mean, again, with the actors, it's, it's being alive to certain things, and obviously the elements are always changing around you. It rains, and then you've got to quickly mm. work with that. I mean, the, the problem is, I mean, we did, we did one scene; it was raining, so okay, it wasn't meant to rain, but we'll just we'll just do it, just get on with it, and we'll and somehow make it part of the whole scene for the reverse shot it stopped raining so oh, what are you going to do I mean it's just but, you know, I, I mean it's normal it's just um, it's a very privileged job to have so I'm not going to complain
4: um, Peter Strickland thanks so much for joining us thank you thanks okay
0: time now for some lovely movie news uh, let's start with the news that Guy Ritchie's King Arthur film Knights of the Round Table King Arthur has found an Ufa! Oofa, <laughs> oofa Eric Banner is yeah. It's Uther Pendragon. It's <laughs> Merlin. Merlin.
1: <laughs> it's Uther, not Luther. Uther Pendragon, who is, of course, great Arthur's... Great Isn't it great? I wish I was called Pendragon. He is Arthur's da, basically. Uh, so I imagine he won't be in it much because, you know, the whole point is he dies. What? Yeah. And that's why Arthur's raised by other people and doesn't know and there's the whole sword and the stone thing, you see.
0: Yes, but he was uh, he was in the BBC's Merlin for ages, played by the bloke from the coffee adverts, who I think went on to do something else <gasps> subsequently. That
1: happened. is Jazz from Buffy and you have some respect for Anthony Head, all right? <laughs> Jeez. Anyway, uh that that's not so much the case in, in the general legend uh, uther tends to hang around a little bit less and which is a shame because i love eric banner and i want him to be in more things um so uh, but but good casting we have charlie hannam already in there as arthur himself uh, astrid berger's frisbee apologies if i'm pronouncing that wrong as guinevere and jude law's apparently in talks good to catch. be the villain um yeah. so so that's a good lineup and jaiman hunsu would be bedivere who trains arthur up in the whole knighting kinging sort of business Nightly mm. King, uh, <laughs> but if you're
0: as played of course by Terry Jones and Holy Grail,
2: shaping up nicely. Yeah,
1: it I
0: mean it hasn't right got it.
2: a
1: huge
2: uh, hurdle to jump over uh, the King Arthur, the previous King Arthur film, Ooh. which uh, was not the previous two King Arthur films so have so been good. a bit rubbish, yeah. haven't they? Really, first night and then
0: actual King Arthur with yeah,
2: with uh, best known for the Clive photoshopping Owen. of uh, Kira Knightley's bosom Indeed. on the poster. Yes, really. Um, yes, did they take Clive Owen's bosom and <laughs> transpose it? Well, what happened?
1: They, they inflated it.
2: They enhanced, enhanced uh, things. Did they? Yeah, okay. quite notably. Although it, that film does have Mads Mickelson and Hugh Dancy it does. As, as knights in it, yeah. which I hadn't realised until I was prepping to interview them last week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but luckily I found that out before, and they, they were quite funny on how they had a good time making that and uh, which one of them had a better horse and stuff like that. Next issue of Empire. <laughs>
1: um, Mads Mikkelsen was so cool in that film, um, but he was the only cool thing in it. Let's be honest. Uh, so yeah, lots and lots of hope for this one because, quite frankly, it can it will struggle to be worse than the King Arthur films we've seen recently. <laughs> and to be honest, like you have to go way, way back s- sixty or seventy years to get to a fun King Arthur movie. It feels like. So, you know, can it's, I get Yankee at King Arthur's court? Maybe. I mean, honestly, yeah. it's been a mm. long time.
0: It seems so, it seems strange, doesn't it? Really, you know, yes. it's such a it's such a overtly cinematic innately cinematic premise um it's yeah. got swords it's got magic it's got tables it's got stones yeah it's got a you know aquatic bent lobbing swords at people it's it's <laughs> it's all good
1: That's no good. basis for a science system of government
0: Chris. <laughs> <laughs> i think we're mangling multiplying <laughs> the holy grail i think we're massively seriously you we know misquoting it um yeah I'm I'm intrigued by this one. I'm intrigued. Six films though is a bit of a stretch. We we shall mm-hmm. see. We shall see if that comes up. But uh Eric Banner good casting as Ufa. Uh, but going back, you know, to you know, as you said Anthony Stewart Head who played him in the BBC TV series for quite a few seasons actually. Um and yeah, I know he was Charles and Buffy, but I've always been fascinated he came to prominence in those Coffee adverts, the Gold Blend coffee adverts. Yeah. And I was always intrigued by the casting of those adverts. I've always wondered how to get ahead in advertising.
1: <laughs> oh he, oh. he spent so long setting that up with that so was, little uh, payoff.
0: Yeah. It's a straight yeah. drive. It's gone for four runs. Oh. Caught in lips.
1: Oh. Excalibur. Let me know Excalibur! Of
0: course! Nick has just pointed out that we've forgotten Excalibur. i <laughs> <You're> literally pointed <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> you point, yeah. Um, yes, yeah. John Burnham's Excalibur. Oh, you don't like it?
1: I, I don't hate it.
0: It's, it's a hard film to love. Yes. But a lot of people do love it. Um, Gabriel but, Byrne as Ufa.
1: No arguments with the casting of that film. Just, yeah. I don't know, with some of the weirdnesses. Oh, it's a good movie. It's a good yeah,
0: movie. Yes. I like it a lot. And then, of course, Monty Python and Holy Grail. Yeah. So... I think you've been proven wrong, Helena O'Hara. I just mean
1: in terms of, you know, the classic legend. Whatever, no, no let's point move back-tracking.
0: on. Just don't no backtracking. You've been proven wrong by yeah. Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, right, so let's let's move on to another bit of Guy Ritchie-related news. I know we don't like to talk about trailers very often here on the uh, on the podcast, what with it, you know, being audio and stuff. But uh, the, the first trailer for his Man From Uncle reboot uh, came out last night. What did we think of it?
1: I really enjoyed this. I think it's really good fun. Um, it's basically, it's it's the 1960s TV show, uh, not updated, just rebooted. It's still a 60s uh, flavor to it. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, Henry Cavill as the CIA's Napoleon Solo, who looks like a lot of fun in this, actually very sarky. Um, very dry. And then, very dry. And then Army Hammer as Ilya Kuryakin, who's the kjb's big hotshot agent. They have to team up to bring down ex Nazis who have gotten their hands on a nuclear weapon. Yeah. Um, so of course they do, and they have Alicia Vikander in. I think. Let's see. Is this her third or her fourth film of eight this year? It's about that. I'm not even kidding. It's eight no. Films. She's she's in everything. Yeah. She's literally in everything. Um, everything
0: she's not in. She is in. She's if in you America. look, she's lurking in the background like the guy from The Too Many Cooks.
2: <laughs> yeah. She's just there.
1: Terrifying a significantly again.
2: better looking version of it. Yes, I think terrifying.
1: that's fair. I don't think he'd argue with that. Um, but it, it looks like fun. So I think it's uh, Vikander obviously has a little bit of a romance, judging by this trailer, with uh, Kuryakin. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Whereas uh, Solo's chatting up every blonde in sight. So, you mm. know, should be interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, and And, you know, Helen just... Just asking over the top of my head. Sure. Are you displeased with a movie featuring Army Hammer and Henry Cavill in the in the leads?
1: I mean, I'm open to the idea. Yeah. You know, they're they they're not exactly burning up the screen with their horrendous ugliness.
0: How's yeah. your fan fiction coming along?
1: <laughs> I don't know why you keep accusing me of writing fan fiction. It's very upsetting. <laughs> I, I draw a line, and that's my line. <laughs>
0: All right, fair enough. Another couple of trailers this week that hit, that hit us. Uh, Cameron Crowe's Aloha, which is what his Untitled Cameron Crowe project has been renamed. I personally still think that they should just call it Untitled Cameron Crowe project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll just we have this, the courage of those
1: convictions. That, would, that
0: would,
2: might get confused with the Untitled Woody Allen project.
0: Is, <laughs> but maybe it could be part of the Untitled movie-verse, you know, just to rival the Avengers. I genuinely
2: of. think somebody sh- at some point should call their film Untitled Someone project. I would get a lot of attention.
0: I would pay money to see that. But that's what um that's what Almost Famous almost was at one point. It was almost called Untitled. I just wish I had the courage of your convictions. But this looks like, for me, it looks like a return to form for Cameron Crowe. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, if you haven't seen the trailer. It's Bradley Cooper as um, a military contractor who in a very Elizabethtown-esque setup seems to have cost his, his business a lot of money. And so he goes to Hawaii to make things right and then he... There he meets an old flame played by Rachel McAdams. He's an assigned and liaison played by Emma Stone in full-on Emma Stone mode. John Krasinski's in it with his, you know, his handsomeness, and Danny McBride's in it with his weirdness, and Ali Baldwin's in it with his shabbiness, and
2: Bill Murray's in it with his Bill Murray aloofness, and all tell who else good. is in it? The who else? A kid from St. Vincent. No way. Oh, yeah. They needed a kid, and Bill Murray recommended him. That's a trivia fact. That is a trivia fact. Because Ali's not here, so, you know, someone has to do it.
1: I also had a a thought this week. It's not really trivia, um, but it's about John Krasinski. So John Krasinski is obviously married to Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt's sister, Felicity, is married to Stanley Tucci. There is a third Blunt sister. Just think of the pressure on her to get somebody (laughs) awesome. Another. No, but seriously, like unless she marries, I don't know, The Rock or Channing Tatum, (laughs) like she's going to feel like, you know, I don't know, a a disappointment.
0: I think you've, you've escalated slightly. John Krasinski and Stanley Tucci are very nice guys, but you're going straight guys. to Channing Tatum and The Rock from there. Pretty
1: that? much, yeah. Mm.
0: Where would you go, Nick? Where would you it's go? Just got from? out of, got out of hand fast. Krasinski, Tucci. What's <laughs> a um, step
2: up there? What? Yeah. Someone he, bald with big ears. <laughs> Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, or um, Azog. <laughs> Azog. <laughs> Azog. Good the Lord. single. Here's my husband, Azog the
0: Defiler. <laughs> What's your Don't name? mind his mace. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a really ruined Christmas dinner. Let's move on.
0: Yeah. He's defiled the turkey again. <laughs> he will insist. Oh, now he's onto the bread sauce. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bread sauce. Right, moving on. Swiftly, moving on. Uh, what was the other trailer you wanted to talk about, Hell's um, Bells?
1: There's a bunch, actually. <laughs> Trainwreck is worth a look. That's the Amy Schumer starring film from Judd Apatow. Oh, this is the one
0: that's triggered Jeff Wells' latest mount- meltdown. Well, on. I mean,
1: that narrows it down, doesn't <laughs> it, Chris? There's a new Cinderella trailer. If you, if you are feeling a little bit too masculine and you'd like to feel a little bit more in touch with your female side, your girly, girly, g- girly side, mm-hmm. Cinderella is the trailer for you. But mm-hmm. there's also a new trailer for Pitch Perfect 2, Uh, which I think is terrific. Um, It it hints that this one's going to be up to the standard of the cult film, uh, of the cult first, uh, Picture Perfect. Uh, It also, actually, slightly annoyingly, I saw a scene when I was on set that I was asked not to write about.
0: Were you on set? Yeah, I was, yeah.
1: Um... I was asked not to write about it because they considered it a spoiler. And then they've only gone and put it in the blooming trailer. So. Well,
2: at some point, they would have to show that, that thing to Yeah, some But people. not in the trailer. It always, hap- it <laughs> always happens. Like I did, um, I did a round of interviews. I wrote the Chappie feature in our last issue, and I did a load of interviews. And I was asking, you know, Is there, are there any other robots in this film? Is there any other? And they were all going, oh, just wait and see. We can't talk about <laughs> it, but there's something that's coming in the third act. And then the trailer came out literally the day after I talked to Simon Kinberg, and he wouldn't say anything. And it's got the giant ed 209 robots stomping around I was like, Right. Okay, great. Sucks, doesn't it? Yeah. Come on, guys.
1: Film journalist problems, people. <laughs> film journalist problems. Yeah, I know, I
2: know.
0: <laughs> well, while, while we're busy checking our privilege, why don't you check out those, webs- those trailers? Um, the thing about Pitch Perfect 2, the, the trailer, and this I don't know if this, guy, this struck you guys either. I've only seen the first film once. I've, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I don't remember the songs being as clearly lip-synced as they seem to be in the Pitch Perfect 2 trailer. They seem to be a lot more singing live on set. Um, am, I, am I wrong or, or am I reading uh, too much into it no
1: i think they were they were there was ling- lip-syncing on the first one as well they're they're not lay missing this uh they thought that would be too hard with the dancing as well yeah um so that they, they, they are lip-syncing but i think it might have just been sometimes when you're watching trailers the sound isn't quite perfectly synced so i'm hoping that will be less obvious in the okay. finished film
0: okay but uh very intrigued very intrigued who's your favorite bell
1: obviously becca mm-hmm.
0: chris um
1: or lily the one who <laughs> speaks really quietly
0: I'm going to say Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Um, I don't know, uh, but I, I, I'm i deeply in love with Anna Kendrick, so let's go for that. Um, okay, let's move on to the BAFTAs. The BAFTAs happened last Sunday. Um, Boyhood won Best Film, Best Director for Richard Linklater. It's pretty much everyone we expected to win something won something. Um, what do we think of the BAFTAs as a whole? Do we enjoy the show? Do we watch the show?
1: Um, I wasn't there for the first time time in 12 years, which was quite exciting for me personally. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be honest, I thought it was a bit sort of, oh, they won, yeah, figures. The whole way through, it was it. It didn't seem to have any huge surprises. Mm. Um, that said, I don't think it means much for the Oscars and so on going forward. I think the BAFTAs going in front of the Oscars, you know, they want you to sort of feel like it's a, you know, it's something that has an effect on what wins the Oscars. And I, I don't think it is. I think it just it's it's more coincident, coincidental with the Oscars. Um, While Boyhood was triumphing at the BAFTAs, Birdman was still doing awfully well. It's done well at the, I think the PGAs and the DGA's, which are much better indicators of what Oscar's going to do. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's sort of important in that sense. But it was a, it was a good show, and everybody seems to be having a wonderful time, and they looked nice. Yeah,
2: it was an okay show, I would say. (laughs) It's, uh, I think the Stephen Fry thing. I I like Stephen Fry very much, but I think they should vary the host a little bit just to mix it up because he does do the same. This is last
1: year, right? This is last
2: year. Okay. There we go. Um and what the hell is going on with Sabian at the beginning? <clears throat> but I did I did like Stephen Hawking, he was very funny, and he uh posted on Facebook after the BAFTAs saying that he loves the LEGO movie.
1: Yes. And the LEGO movie won, which is already better than the Oscars. So yeah, there yeah. you
0: go. That yeah. was good. And those those guys were very happy to to have won. Um yeah, I, I think all the fun has been taken out of the Oscar race. I think we pretty much know everything that's gonna happen. Maybe just some Birdman, Boyhood not quite sure which mm-hmm. way it's going to go but otherwise it's Julianne Moore is going to win Best Actress J.K. Simmons is going to win Best Supporting Actor Patricia Arquette is going to win Best Supporting Actress and Best Actor is going to go to uh, Eddie Redmayne for The Theory of Everything uh, I would, yeah. it does I would say it's yeah.
2: not a vintage <laughs> year I really I think apart from Boyhood I don't think many of these films are really going to be remembered 5-10 years time personally
0: I think Birdman, from a stylistic point of view, Birdman, um, yeah, Birdman may be the might exception. Might be, but yeah, I I agree with you on that one. I think this is um, I think this is a pretty brilliant.
1: I would also like to say I'm very pleased for the Interstellar guys winning for best visual effects because while I had some reservations about the film, I didn't so much have a, about their effects. And I saw a breakdown recently of what they did to make that all happen, mm-hmm. and it was astonishing. So uh, so full marks to Paul Franklin and his team.
0: Matthew McConaughey, completely not real.
1: Yeah, that's true. He they hasn't been real for many years. No. He's it's played true. by a ninety-year-old grandmother from Des Moines. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Sahara isn't a real thing. It's not a real thing. It's, it's actually, actually CG. An implant. Oh,
2: okay.
0: Memory implant. That explains a lot about Sahara. (laughs) It really does, really does. Uh, Okay, so that's it for the movie news. Uh, Our second guest this week is an old Empire podcast favourite. He's making his third appearance in the pod, a bit like Douglas Booth last week, which means we get to keep him. Mark Strong is one of our finest and favourite actors, whether he's being bad in the likes of Robin Hood or Kick-Ass, I should explain that, whether he's good at being bad, I mean he's not bad, he's playing a bad guy. Uh, in the likes of Robin Hood or Kick-Ass or Ryan Sarcastic in the likes of The Imitation Game or Kingsman The Secret Service uh, both of which are currently on release right now uh, he's currently treading the boards on the West End stage with Arthur Miller's A Few From The Bridge and he came in this week to talk to myself and Nick about mm. that very thing and you will see, soon see why Nick was in the room with him it's really quite, quite funny it really Enjoy. Is. you have just, you've literally just finished the first night of A Few From The Bridge first yes. preview of A Few from the Bridge. Second bite at The Cherry with this play as well, because you did it last year at the at the Young Vic. Yeah. Has it changed much in that, in that the time? The only
5: thing that's changed, the cast is the same, which makes yeah. the rehearsal process for the new space much easier. The space has changed. Obviously, the Young Vic is a theatre in the round, and uh, the Wyndhams that we're in now is a proscenium arch theatre, so mm. the bulk of the audience is sitting opposite the stage. But mm. what they've done, which is genius, is put seats on the stage. So it feels a little bit like the Young Vic. And I was a little worried last night that people on the stage would feel... Visible, but actually it went great and by having them there. It means the whole thing is completely intimate and intense Yeah And sometimes you're playing to the people of the side stage and sometimes you're playing out front and it was a really good balance Actually, so I'm, I'm really confident that we're gonna have a good time on this run
0: how, how aware are you as an actor when you're when you're in the middle of a play and you're fully focused on the, on the text and everything happening around you? How aware are you of the audience especially if they're that like close, if they're on the stage with you, mm. is that distracting at any point? Or
5: That's an interesting question because uh, there was a scene yesterday where I sit Phoebe Fox down, who plays my niece, and I'm literally talking to her and a metre and a half behind her, there are three people looking directly at me as I'm talking to her and it's impossible not to see them. Mm. But the only way I can really describe it is like when you're driving, you know there are a number of things going on at once you're conscious of how you're driving the car how you're holding the wheel and you know if you're on a stick shift how the gears are working and your feet are going you're also conscious of the lights the people crossing but also people at the side who might be about to cross and cyclists. so it's a little like that on stage you're you're absolutely focused on the person you're talking to but you're aware of what's around and you just have you have to kind of just filter that out but it was it was unusual and i kept having to pull myself back to remembering to talk to phoebe rather than thinking oh look she's uh, that's a rather lovely blouse she's wearing and, uh, you know
2: <laughs> yeah. just to draw on my very limited um experience I, I remember we had to throw around an invisible beach ball as a kind of preparation before going on stage do you guys do anything like that do you have any warm-up exercises uh
5: thankfully not too many like that i mean i i i know people at drama school who spent months looking at their hands or you know, months standing in the corner being an iguana or whatever. And in fact, some of the auditions I had to do for drama school, I remember one awful one. You're at a cocktail party and uh, suddenly you slowly transform into an animal of your choice. And, uh, you know, what do you do, for Christ's sake? I I was a monkey. I just sat in the corner gibbering and left (laughs) everybody else to it, which was a bit of a cop-out. But uh, I do remember Deborah Warner's King Lear when at the National Theatre we arrived and... We all sat in a circle and ominously, this is the first day, ominously, in the middle of the circle were two tambourines. And she said, um, you know, whenever you feel ready, I'd just like you to get up, get into the circle and uh, and speak to each other using the tambourines. I thought, what? <laughs> and uh, sure enough, Ian McKellen gets up, starts banging his tambourine, so I thought, well, I'll have a go. So... <laughs> <laughs> Cut to a really odd moment of me and him talking to each other through banging tambourines at each other, which has kind of haunted me ever since, I have to say. But you can get bogged down in um, nonsensical games like that. They, they're, they're sometimes helpful. I have to say, that that broke the ice, and I think that's what she was intending, just, mm. you know, instead of being precious, just get up there and play a little bit. But it can backfire and be a little um, mm. tortuous as well. Yeah. It's Arthur Miller's centenary year this year, so yeah. there's every possibility it may still go to Broadway.
0: That'd be fantastic. You could find out how close Broadway is to the uh, the the, uh, the image presented in Birdman, for example. Yeah. It would be uh, interesting to see if it's...
5: Yeah, I, um, I, I love... You. Well, it's probably not far different. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is I went to... I was in New York recently and I, I got to the uh, the guy, the very... You know how strict they are, these security guys, when you try and get into America? You know, they are the first line of defence, aren't yeah. they, those passport guys? Right. And they never smile, and they, they look at your paperwork like, uh, you know, you're trying to kid them. And a uh, guy said to me, he said, well, so he said, so, you're, what, what do you do? I said, um, I'm an actor. He went, huh.
2: <laughs>
5: actor. Uh, You've been in anything I know? I said, it's funny you should say that. I'm just doing a play, a New York play, set in Brooklyn, A View from the Bridge by Arthur Miller. He went, huh. Let's hear your accent. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, if this is going to get me through quicker, I'll do it. So I did a couple of, but you know, Brooklyn, this, Brooklyn, that, And there was this pause, and he went, yeah, needs work. <laughs> you were just off a plane, so, you know, yeah, you need to cut your break. Liza, my wife, just looked at me like... Uh, Bad luck, son. <laughs> I hadn't passed the first
4: test.
0: You were like, no, I, I, I can do it. I can get it right. Yeah. <laughs> just holding the line up for hours. Um, that's amazing. You're not on Twitter. You, you mentioned that. You don't do social media. No. Why not? I uh, think wrong you'd bring generation. A, you'd bring a lot to Twitter, Mark. I think you really would. I know, but just wrong generation.
5: Um, uh, I, I don't do PlayStation or Xbox or any of those things. It's because
0: just passed you by?
5: Yeah, I don't have bro- older brothers or okay. sisters or, in fact, any brothers and sisters. So often... That's how you you get to learn about all this stuff. It gets brought into the house by brothers and sisters. but And also, I was at boarding school for years and years, so there was no kind of home family life that, that encouraged all of that. Consequently, I don't really... I've never really bought those things or played with them. I do remember sitting around at a friend's flat after we have been out clubbing, watching him play a, a Sega Mega Drive <laughs> for hours. <laughs> but that's about as close as I've got to the whole thing. And the same thing is true of... Um, You know, Facebook and Twitter, and I may sound old, but, you know, literally in my day, I had a diary which you locked with a padlock. (laughs) (laughs) With a key and a padlock. So if you had any thoughts, you'd write them down (laughs) and you'd lock them up so nobody knew what you were thinking. And today it's completely the opposite. opposite. You know, every waking thought is broadcast to whatever's out
2: there. yeah. I've read that some actors have it in their contract that they have to do a certain amount of promotion through social media. Mm. Do you ever, have you ever been asked to do anything like that?
5: I haven't come across that, yeah. I mean, people no. check social media on my behalf, and I think there's even people on Facebook and Twitter who are pretending to be me, as far oh, as yeah. I know, but I, I've never, I don't know how to check it, so uh, I'm <laughs> not
2: sure. Do you know what they're saying,
5: these nice uh, imposters? I think the, 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 if I don't know, it's the best thing. <laughs> I don't want to delve in there and find out, to be honest. Um, that up. But, you know, my, kid, <laughs> yeah. my kids are growing up using it, and okay. uh, I suppose I'll have to get with the program at some point. But, yeah. you know, I know that Ridley, for example, uh, whenever he gets an email, his assistant has to print it out for him and put it on his desk. Because really? he doesn't do email.
0: <laughs> He's that generation, you know? Yeah, Bob Whitey said the same thing about Woody Allen. He did a documentary with with Woody, and he said that he literally still has to he types out emails and then gives them to his assistant who puts it in the computer and then sends it. So... It's interesting. But, there you go. You
2: know, Generation.
0: Not, you're, not, you're in your seventies. You're you're young. You're you're feral, You're full of the prime of life. I know.
2: There's so so all good reasons it. not to be on Twitter. <laughs> <answer. laughs>
5: <laughs> I slightly <laughs> suspect also that I would find it a be to be you know slightly uh, tyrannical in that you would feel like you had to come out with something interesting every hour or twenty minutes or daily or however. Mm. you know, long the gap is between people actually commenting and things on Twitter. And I would feel a great, I'd probably be paralyzed by an inability to say <laughs> something interesting or funny in however many characters you're allowed. And because um, the whole thing about friends and Facebook became quite a tyranny for people, didn't it? How many yeah. friends have you got? And it mm. just, you know, sounds a nightmare,
2: to be honest. <laughs> you might actually be better off without it. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm curious whether you've seen your IMDb page. There's a section marked Trademarks. And you have two trademarks written down. Oh, yeah. Do you know what they are? Can you guess what your trademarks as an actor are? Trademarks? Yeah. Um, Christ, no. Uh, uh, no. The two things you do better than anyone else. So the first is deep, smooth voice, oh, and the God. second is cold, <laughs> unflinching gaze. <laughs> Are those on your CV? And how much work have you put into that cold, unflinching gaze to get it to that, that level?
5: You see, there is—that's unlocked the secret of my talent. There it is, right there: deep, smooth voice, cold, unflinching gaze, and you're in. In combination, they're lethal. Yeah, yeah. really? That's what it says. That's, that's what it says. Who There's a lot of this I, stuff—I
2: have no idea who writes this. Wow. Stuff.
5: No, I had no idea, but now that's going to put me right off,
0: isn't it? I'm going, to
5: start talking like that, and, uh, be skitty, you know.
0: And tonight, when you unleash your cold, unflinching gaze, you might just move it up a bit, you might just roll your eyes around a bit and do a bit exactly. of comedy business on the stage. That's what I meant, be skittish, you know, blinking a
5: lot and uh, you know, not knowing where to look.
0: And this will be the day, led, you know, someone's in from the Uni Standard doing the review and it's, you know, Strong was skittish tonight and talking, Spoke in a falsetto for most of the play, it was rather strange. But... Where, oh, where, oh, where... Was the cold uncle, <laughs> That's what we paid the ticket for. In Kingsman, you play effectively Q. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in Grimsby, which is uh, now out next year, 2016, are you playing Bond? Pretty much. Where's yeah. the money, Penny? Uh, project. <laughs> that's, I'm asking the same question. As um, shorthand. That's a very astute evaluation of those. I like, I like to astutely evaluate your career. That's what I, that's Brilliant. What I do. That's all Brilliant. I do.
5: With a cold, unflinching gaze.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> but not a, not a deep, smooth voice. No so. deep, oh, smooth voice. Oh, I don't know. Oh, okay.
5: um, it's amazing how many spy
0: movies there are. The <laughs> it is, moment, isn't it? Because yeah. yeah. there's it Man From U.N.C.L.E. is coming out. Man From U.N.C.L.E. You've got Melissa McCarthy's Spy as well, which is coming out later in the year.
5: Yeah. Um, well, Grimsby's now been moved to February, I think. Okay. It was meant to come out in July. And I think part of the reason is this glut of spy movies and spy-related movies. Mm-hmm. Um... But, but Kingsman is, is just a wonderful spoof, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Matthew Vaughan, the director, he 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 just has his finger on the pulse somehow. I think he really understands what people enjoy when they go to the cinema, even if it's a guilty pleasure. Um, people have, you know, they're buzzing about the film. And, and I think he's really made a film that is a throwback to the fun and irreverence of those early
0: Bond movies. I imagine, you know, Matthew's uh, quite loyal to his cast and crew, and... I think that, that, that tends to be reciprocated. Uh, would you say, if he turned up and said, uh, I want to make the phone book, mm-hmm. would you say yes? Because probably. You, you, you have turned him down in the past. I mean, you, you passed on Sebastian Shaw in uh, X-Men First Class.
5: Yeah, th- I'm not sure that that was necessarily me passing as much as okay. uh, the studio balking at me doing another villain.
0: Damn them. At
5: the time. <laughs> they were probably right, yeah. to be honest. Um, although I do speak German. Yeah, uh, And it would have been a perfect fit, ironically, more so than any of the other films that I've done with him. I mean, why he shoehorned me into a Scottish accent in <laughs> Kingsman, uh, I don't know. I mean, he wanted me originally to be Welsh, and uh, that's a fiendishly difficult accent. And I, I just, I said, no, I can't do that. And he said, all right, then Scottish. And that was an interesting thing, because normally you do Scottish if you're not Scottish. And you do the Glasgow, you know, that kind of thing. Well, you do the very late Edinburgh kind of thing. And this was something else. Um but I had a voice coach, and I really worked hard on it. And then when I met Mark Miller, he said, "He said, uh, he said, I don't know how you've done it, but you've just managed to nail northeast fife." <laughs>
0: <laughs> Specifically, a street. Uh, <laughs> There's <laughs> one street in what <laughs> these found. Um, that's, that's interesting. So it's a shame, in a way, that there isn't any border control anymore in Scotland. Because the next time you go up there, someone could go do the accent and <laughs> see if you can get you know access to Scotland by doing your Scottish accent. Well, but James
5: be, McAvoy gave me the nod the other day. He said it was all right. He's appalled at how many you know non-Scots attempt to to do the Scots accent and mangle <laughs> it to death. So I've, I think I've come out okay from this one. Indeed. the sequel
0: will be interesting
5: if we do that
0: absolutely it hasn't been any word now because it's done really well at the box office in the uk and uh from what i hear it's doing it's, it's on course to do very well in the states this weekend
5: uh, well i know that matthew's very keen i mean it's all economics you know if the mm. film does well then um the doors open to the possibility of it mm. but i know matthew has very strong ideas and um and mark miller's up for it too so uh, you know watch this space
0: um we've got lady go in a second mark i just want to ask um very very quickly uh, a couple of things. Jason Fleming, yeah, uh, also uh, off this podcast on occasion, does a very good Matthew Fawn impression. Uh-huh. Do you do your Matthew Fawn impression?
5: I probably do an impression of Jason doing Matthew Vaughn, <laughs> which is, yeah, Fleming, come over here. Yeah, Fleming, what I want you to do, I want you to drop your pants, <laughs> and I want you to drop them now. Why? What do you mean? You're an actor. Do it. Drop them. <laughs> That's Matthew, and he's very blunt, directing style. <laughs> <isn't laughs> no? he, he and Jace have a very special relationship, and he's always kind of making fun of him. And uh, He's great, Matthew. I have to say, he's very loyal. Yeah. And um, he does, He does. You, you said earlier, works with the same people, and, and for good reason. I think mm. when he finds people that he can, you know, who get him, it's a much easier environment on set.
0: We'll let you go back because uh, uh, apparently you have to prepare for tonight. Yes, yeah, got to get ready for a second night. Indeed. Mark Strong, pleasure as always. Yeah. Fourth time soon. Okay, yeah, I <laughs> look forward to it. Thank, Thank you so very much. Time now for movie reviews. There's really only one player in town this week, which is Fifty Shades of Grey, of course. Uh, problem is, none of us have seen it at the time of recording. None of
2: us will admit
0: that we've seen it. <laughs> oh?
1: None of us have seen it because it's only screened so far at the Berlin Film Festival.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Ruggy? <laughs> <laughs>
1: At the Berlin Film Festival, and uh, none of us went to Berlin, so, you know, there there was a, apparently some kind of fan screening in New York, but there has been nothing in this country, yes. um, which is slightly up upsetting in the sense that we need to see it for our jobs. Um, <laughs> I did pass lots of people queuing for the premiere tonight, in Leicester Square on the way here, but that's right. about as close as we have gotten.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, and for, for reasons I can't go into, I'm not allowed to come within 50 yards of that movie, so... It's kind of rude. weird, weird one. But uh, yes, we have not seen it. So we're going to talk about it on next week's podcast. We're going to talk about it in great probing detail. Um, but the Empire Review will be on the Empire website by the time you listen to this, if, of course, we can get it up. Given our age, we're 25 now. I'm not so sure that's going to happen. But we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully hopefully, it'll be... It's It's hard. But we'll see if we can make it work. Uh, So Fifty Shades of Grey, which uh, got five stars, four stars, three stars, two stars, one star, delete as applicable. Uh, Let's talk about a movie we have seen, which is Love is Strange. There's not a lot out this week because Fifty Shades of Grey is a bit of a behemoth and uh, movies are running scared. But let's talk about Love is Strange, which Alfred Molina and John Lithgow play a gay couple in New York whose decision to marry causes them big problems. Helen do you want to start off? Uh,
1: Yes so there are a couple who have been together for 40 years Mm -hmm. when we meet them Um, and they finally decide to to get married but that leads to uh, Alfred Molina's character George losing his job um, because he's a he's a choir teacher in a school and you know when he sort of they they see this essentially as making his gayness impossible to ignore and and therefore lay him off um, which is offensive on so many levels means that they basically fall on on extremely hard times uh, their their investments fail them their their living arrangement basically fails them and they're out on the street um, and in order to, to find somewhere to live they do have friends they do have family but they have to split up to to find a bed each nowhere, nowhere seems able to take them both in and so you've got this this situation where their you know their marriage actually splits them apart at least physically and it's kind of the story of how they how they deal with that and how they try and pull things back together and i mean terrific performances from from both of them in particular it's an absolutely it's an absolutely touching and heartwarming story really
0: it's very very gentle and sweet and bittersweet and lovely and to my mind is a bit of a groundbreaking film mm. i can't think of too many films that have you know, there's a lot more films and these days are portraying gay relationships and gay marriage, but I can't really think of any that have gone for this demographic, so to speak. You know, the, the, the older gay couple, brilliantly played by John Lithgow and Alfred Molina and a wonderful supporting cast, including Marissa Tomai. Um, yeah, it's really, really just a lovely little film. Um, well acted, quite funny, quite sad in places. Go and see it if it floats your boat, if yeah. you like watching great acting. And uh, this is... That's, that's as best I can say about it. Really, it's it, it's it's really it just really deserves your attention. I think.
1: I I would be very surprised if this is not the better romance of the films like this week. I have to say. I think so. I thought
0: it's a movie where you come into their lives when the romance is kind. They're still very much deeply in love with each other, but you know, it's it's not about. Oh yeah, the, it's the, not
1: about hearts and flowers. Yeah, so much, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's about just what you need to do to survive and. And and the interesting thing for me is that even though the movie throws loads of obstacles in their way, that their love for each other endures yeah. and remains very, very strong um, throughout um, because love is indeed
2: strange. I've got to give Telegraph critic Robbie Collin um, props for dubbing this 50 Shades of Grey
1: Hair.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of sex in this one.
1: <laughs>
0: Uh, But yes, four stars uh, for Love is Strange. Uh, It is really, really good. Do go and see it if you can. opened in London last week on, I think, one screen, but now it's going around across the rest of the country. Also out this week, there's the twisting, turning science fiction movie, Coherence, uh, to which we gave four
1: four stars. stars,
0: Also good. And stars, weirdly enough, another member of uh, the Buffy cast.
1: You see? They're everywhere.
2: Nicholas Brendan is in it. Yeah, coherence is a really interesting, very low budget but um, very smartly put together sci-fi movie. It's basically a dinner party that is hit by a passing comet, and it's all the ensuing weirdness that kind of goes on. Yeah, so it's uh, to say much more would be to spoil it, but it's really kind of interesting. Yeah, film you should check out. Yeah, you can't get into plot stuff, can you? Not really. No,
0: because it goes weird. But yes, but if your friend, fr- friends, if that, if your friends, if your friends or fans of Sander from Buffy, then Nicholas Brandon. Is in this one. I once saw him, or it might have been his twin brother, at a uh, at an Albertsons in LA. Now, is wow. that is that not the
2: greatest? That's that's <laughs> not so much a name. Spot. I'm not sure that counts as a name drop. That's like picking up a <laughs> 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 But um yeah, to come back to Kieran quickly, uh, our writer Simon Crook has uh, kind of come up with a way of teasing this movie, which is to say it's Schrodinger's Cat the movie. Ooh.
0: Ooh. So if
2: you like cats and Schrodinger. And who movies. This <laughs> is your lucky
0: weekend. <laughs> okay, so uh, four stars for Coherence, four stars for Love is Strange, and who knows for <sighs> Fifty Shades of Grey? Maybe it'll be the first fifty-star movie. We'll see. Um, but that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Bill Nighy. Ooh, Bill Nighy here for the second best exotic marigold hotel, and Margot Robbie, lovely Margot Robbie, star Yay. of Focus. That's a damned attractive pod, isn't it? That's going to be pretty good. Ooh. Quite happy with that. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Doodle. It's goodbye from Nick. Pip, pip. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to think really hard about more great abrupt endings. In the-